So, with that being said, let's open up our Bibles to Romans 9, verse 13. Let's go to Romans 9, verse 13, if you're using the Blue Bible from the center of the table. It's page 1046. Page 1046. Our passage is Romans 9, 13 through 18. Next week's passage... We will cover verses 19 through 24. So please write that down and dig into that next week. So we'll be in Romans 9 today. And then we have either, I think, two more weeks after that is the plan. So today is verses 13 through 18. Next week is verses 19 through 24. In the book of 2 Peter... We have this really unusual statement from Peter. Yeah, he and Paul knew each other. And he said to the people, Peter said to the people he was writing to, Y'all know the Apostle Paul, our beloved brother, who has wrote to you in the past? Some of the things that he wrote are hard to understand, Peter says. In 2 Peter 3, Peter says some of the things that our beloved brother Paul wrote to you are hard to understand. I believe Romans 9 is certainly in that category. But I believe that Christians, because we have God's Spirit, we can do hard things and we can understand hard things. As a matter of fact, because God is in us, We can do the impossible because he is a God who does the impossible. As we approach our text today, I want you to know that this is for you. Even if you got saved yesterday, this is for all of us. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 11 God says to Moses and his people, This commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. And he goes on to say, The word is very near to you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. Church, you can understand this passage. You can wrap your mind around it to some degree. And I say to some degree because there are mysteries in here that we cannot fully grasp. But these teachings in Romans 9 have the potential to bring so much good, not only to you, but to our church and also to this community. For when I, it is my observation in my own soul, and as I've watched many others, as people have come to understand the doctrine of election that Paul unpacks in Romans chapter 9, when they understand it properly, there is a fire that, begin, that, that, that burns brighter than it ever has before. So, how did we get here? How did we get to this in Romans 9? Well, you remember Romans 8 had all these incredible, precious promises for the people of God. And last week... 
Paul brought up a question that many of his readers would have. He anticipated objections. He anticipated the thoughts of his readers and questions they would have. And he says, well, what about Israel? God, you gave so many promises to them, but now you're saying that these promises are fulfilled in the church. God, did you forget about Israel? And Paul went on to say that if some of them aren't saved, if some of the Jews don't come to God, then does that mean that God is unfaithful or that God is a liar? That would be an objection that someone may have after reading Romans 8. And Paul says very strongly, the word of God has not failed. God is faithful and true even if some of the Jewish people missed out on all the promises that they had the opportunity to believe and receive. God is certainly trustworthy because not all of Israel is Israel. Did you all remember that from last week? Not everyone who is a descendant of Abraham, not everyone who is in the bloodline of Abraham, not everyone who is an ethnic Jew is actually a true Jew. A true Jew is one who has believed in the Messiah. And Paul would go on in last week's passage to bring up two examples from the Old Testament. He brought up Abraham and Sarah and the, how God worked with them, how God dealt with them. He, dealt with, he, he brought up their family and um, two of Abraham's sons and how one was a chosen child of the promise and the other one was not. And then we looked at Abraham's son Isaac and his wife Rebecca. We looked at their family last week. They got married and they had a hard time having children. And many, many years later, Rebecca became pregnant with twins. And Paul deals with their family to prove, he presents what happened in their family to prove his argument that not everyone in Israel is actually of Israel. And that God is still true. And that God is still faithful. So at the end of the passage, there were some hard words. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And I left y'all intentionally with a bit of a cliffhanger. What does it mean that God would hate somebody? Well, today we're going to look deeply into that in our sermon. So that's where we've been. That is how we have got to where we are. Our passage today is not very long, and our passage today does uh, bring up more of the Old Testament, but there's some of the more popular stories of the Old Testament having to do with Moses and the exodus of Israel and such as that, something that uh, many of us are, are already somewhat familiar with. So with that being said, uh, let's read Romans 9, 13 through 18. As it is written, Jacob I loved. But Esau, I hate it. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion but on God who has mercy. 
For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. These are the words of the Lord. Take some time, read them to yourself, dive deep, ponder them, meditate on them. And uh, when the time is right, your table leader will begin the discussion. All right. If you would, have your Bible open in front of you with Romans 9. Uh, Part of this sermon, we will turn to the book of Exodus. The two stories from the Old Testament Testament that we covered today were both from Exodus. I want to quickly look at the structure of this passage and point out a few big picture things. There is a very bold statement in verse 13. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. That is very bold. So in the three verses before that, verses 10, 11, and 12... God gives some explanation or some support. He doesn't just spout off verse 13 senselessly. He doesn't just make that bold statement senselessly. But he builds up to saying that in verses 10, 11, and 12. And we'll recap that in a moment. So if if God loved Jacob but hated Esau, that raises a question. So that's what verse 14 does. Verse 14 raises the question. Is God unjust? Did God do anything wrong by choosing one and not choosing the other? And he says, by no means. Then in verses 15 and 16, we have a reference from the Old Testament to a story in the life of Moses. And then in verses 17 and 18, we have a reference to a second story from the life and ministry of Moses. And both of these stories are presented in the same way. Look at the beginning of the first story in verse 15. And look at the beginning of the second story in verse 17. They both start with four. For this happened. Well, look in verse 16. How does verse 16 start? So then. So verse 15, we have for. Verse 16, we have so then. Paul is saying this happened in verse 15. And in verse 16, he says, so then he's saying this is what we learn from what happened in verse 15. And that's how the first story from the Old Testament is structured. The second story from the Old Testament is structured in the same way. In verse 17, he says four, and he goes on to tell the story about Pharaoh. This is what happened. This is what God did with Pharaoh. It's a fact. In verse seven, oh, I'm sorry, in verse 18 is the implication of the story. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So then, in verse 18... We see that God can do this to whomever he pleases. So that's like the basic structure of this passage. 
Let's look at verses 10, 11, and 12 very quickly from last week. Verse 11 is key. I'll begin in verse 10. And not only so, but also when Rebekah, all right, that was the daughter-in-law of Abraham and Sarah. That was the wife of Abraham and Sarah's promised son, Isaac. So Rebekah. When she had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, they were twins, though they were not yet born, and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. So Rebecca's first children were twins. There was a struggle in the womb. She felt the struggle and she prayed to God, what's going on, Lord? This is all in Genesis 25. You can look at it if you like. Genesis 26. What's going on, Lord, with my two babies? And God said to her, the older will serve the younger. Now, he said some other things in addition to that, and you can go back and read that in Genesis 25 and 26 if you like. But in verses 10, 11, and 12, it says clearly that God chose one of them. Not because of works, verse 11 says, but because of him who calls. One was chosen not because he did something different than what the other would do, or not because God saw what he would do in the future, and made his choice dependent on our choice. But he chose in order that God's purpose of election might continue. And you notice in verse 11, it also says that God's choice was made before they had done anything good or bad. So we get to verse 13. I began unpacking 10, 11, and 12 last week. We get to verse 13, and here we have this bold statement. As it is written. Whenever you see that statement, it usually means that he's quoting Scripture. And this is a reference to Malachi. The prophet Malachi is the one who said, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Malachi was the last book of the Old Testament that was written. It was... 450, maybe 500 years before Paul wrote Romans. So it was also, Malachi also spoke these words hundreds of years, probably about a thousand years after Jacob and Esau lived. See, this story in the book of Genesis has been passed down through Scripture in the Jewish nation. And Malachi was the last prophet of the Old Testament. And he makes this statement about Jacob and Esau. Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. In Malachi chapter 1, God is proclaiming his love for his people, the nation of Israel. And they ask him, God, how have you loved us? And he responds, 
Jacob I love, but Esau I hate it. Now Esau and his family, they become the nation of Edom. God then compares how he is treating Esau's descendants with how he is treating Jacob's descendants. See, Jacob's descendants, it was a period of time where they weren't being faithful to their God and they were, there were consequences and judgment coming to them in this life. Things were not going well for them as a nation. They're like, God, you don't love us. And God was like, yes, I do. Look how I treat this other nation. And he gives some details there in Malachi. So this big, bold statement that we see from Paul in verse 13 is a direct quotation from the prophet Malachi. Why does Paul bring this up? Why does he say something so hard? He says this because Paul wants all of us to know God is under no obligation to save anyone. If you're here today and you're thrilled that you're a Christian, that your sins have been forgiven and you're going to heaven, I want you to know God did not owe this to you or me. He freely chose to give it to you. We were spiritually dead in our sin. And don't you know dead people can't choose to be alive? But God, in His sovereign, unconditional, merciful election, chooses to make some spiritually dead people, some non-Christians, He chooses to give them spiritual life and to change them and make them Christians. Paul is citing Malachi in verse 13 because he wants us all to know God doesn't owe this good gift to anybody. And he's also doing it not just in regard to us as individuals, but because of this whole thing with the nation of Israel. The people of Israel thought that God owed them. Well, their religion was to be a religion of faith just as our religion is to be a religion of faith. We look back to the Messiah and Him saving us. They were supposed to look forward to the future. Their salvation was by faith just like ours was. Just because they had the law and the tabernacle and the temple and the, the, um, the sacrifices and all that stuff, that doesn't mean they were supposed to trust that. Those things were just signs or indicators to the true Savior, Jesus, who would come. So God is bringing this up and saying this because He wants us to know that He elects people for Himself according to the counsel of His goodwill. He does all that He... he our God is in the heavens... And he does all that he pleases, it says in Psalm 115. So, if you want to know more about why God chooses some and not others, I'll be getting into that next week. And I also preached on that uh, question back in June from Ephesians chapter 1, and that's available. that sermon is available online. So God 
made this determination with Jacob and Esau before they were born. Amen? Amen. We can conclude that. So, he hated Esau. What does that really mean? Does it mean pure hatred? Like what we may feel occasionally? Like what some in our world feel constantly? It might mean that. It probably, and, and, and there's, there's a big debate about this, and it's hard to say for sure. It probably means that he loved Esau less. It probably means he loved Esau less. What we must conclude from verse 13 is that God set his affectionate, special love on Jacob, but he did not pour that out on Esau. He poured out a special, saving, regenerating, and transforming love on Jacob, but he did not do that on Esau. But God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So God hating Esau, does that contradict John 3.16? No, it doesn't. God still loves the world. God pours out mercy even on unbelievers. Esau was a very prosperous and blessed man in this life, but not in the life to come. One may say, but God has to love all people the same. He has to treat everyone equally. No, he doesn't. You know what? I love my kids. Joe and Tina, I love your kids. But I love my kids more. Is there anything wrong with that? There would actually be something wrong if that was not the case. We live in a world today where everyone feels like they're entitled to everything. And so, this can be hard to swallow. And not, we live in a world today where everyone thinks everyone should be God's child and, or everyone is God's child. No. We are not God's children until we believe in Jesus Christ and are saved. And at that time, he adopts us. Then we are his children. Well, one may object, it's not okay for God to reject Esau. But God didn't reject Esau. To say that God rejected Esau implies that Esau was knocking down God's door. But Esau certainly was not doing such a thing. Neither was Jacob. When the doctrine of God's unconditional election is taught, it is common for people to say, What if someone who God has not elected wants to get saved? Do you mean to tell me that God will not accept him? Well, here's why that objection doesn't work. That's never happened before. No sinner wants to come to God in faith and live under his authority unless God's love first is poured down onto him. And all 
whom God chooses do come. Now, they might come when they're three or when they're 93. We don't begin to know how any of that works, and that's okay. So God loved Jacob but hated Esau. We must conclude from this that God set his affectionate love on one and he withheld it from the other. God did not reject Esau. He just let Esau be about his own business. And God is perfectly okay and just in doing that. So, the question is raised in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Paul does this over and over again. This is maybe the fifth or sixth time he's done this in the book of Romans. He presents a truth, and then he brings up an objection, and then he says, by no means. Do you see that at the end of verse 14? By no means, of course not. Verse 14, is there injustice on God's part? That's another way of saying, did God do anything wrong in letting Esau do what he did? And the answer is no. We must understand that Jacob and Esau, like all people, are wicked and awful men. God has the right to throw us all in hell, should he please. Isn't it incredible that he pours out mercy on some? Isn't that incredible? Some dear Christians read Romans 9, and they conclude wrongly, That God's election is based on his foreknowledge of what will happen in the future. And I've addressed this weeks ago, but I want to bring it up again because it's, it's, I know I thought that for years when I, I, as I've studied Romans 9, I mean, this has been almost 20, 15, 20 years ago. I, I just kept wanting to go back to that. Well, God knows everything, so he looks through the corridors of time and makes his choice based on our future choice. Well, that makes God dependent on me. And last time I checked, God is dependent on no one. And if he was dependent on someone, he would not be God. Amen? If God would have chosen them based on what he foresaw them do in the future, then God would have thrown them both in hell. The whole idea of election based on foreseen faith is a gospel according to works, which we reject wholeheartedly at Hope Fellowship. It says that God chose because one was better than the other. Election based on foreseen faith says one person did something that the other person did not do, and because of that thing that they did, God saved them. Our salvation is not, we did not, let me say it like this, we did not initiate it. God did. And because God initiated it, then we believed and we repented. Did we really believe and really repent? Absolutely. God's election does not cancel out what we do. But God's election assures us Or or let me say it like this. God's election creates that faith in each of God's children. So, that's verses 13 and 14. 
We get to verse 15. We have two stories from the Old Testament brought up to support Paul's answer. That God is not, that God didn't do anything wrong in choosing one and leaving the other in their sin. Look at verse 15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Y'all, when you're compassionate on someone, is that something that, like, like that's just the very nature of compassion is something that's offered freely, right? And mercy, by its very definition, is something that you give to someone freely. And, God, and that's true for us as humans. How much more true is it for God? And he says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. I'll have mercy and compassion on these few people here, but not those few people there, but I will those people right there. And God is free. He can do that. In Romans 11, the Bible says that God is no man's debtor. That means God doesn't owe anybody anything. God is free. Turn to Exodus chapter 33, if you would, and I want to uh, look at this story a little bit more closely. So we're going to read beginning in Exodus 33, 18 here in just a moment. But let me recap. God's people are slaves in Egypt. God rescues them from Egypt. He's sending them towards the promised land. They leave Egypt. They cross the Red Sea. The Red Sea swallows up Pharaoh and the Egyptian chariots. And then they get to Mount Sinai. God, Moses goes up on the mountain. God gives them the Ten Commandments. Moses is up there for a long time. I believe it's 40 days. The people, as they're waiting at the bottom of the mountain, reject God and begin, and they make their own God and begin worshiping the fake, false God. God sends Moses back down the mountain. There's judgment. There's bloodshed. 3,000 of them die. All kinds of horrible stuff. And God's like, I'm done. I'm done with these people. I'm just going to, I'm not going with y'all anywhere. I'm not doing anything. And Moses prays and, he, and he's like, God, you made all these promises. Aren't you going to fulfill them? And God says, yes, I will go with you. I will not forsake my chosen people. And then we get to Exodus. I'm giving you, that's a very simplified version. Okay. It's worthy of 10 sermons. But then we get to Exodus 33:18, and Moses prays this, "Show me your glory." Y'all, that's a great prayer. Y'all should pray that every day. <laughs> I pray it often. I don't do it every day. "Show me your glory." So verse 19, God said, "I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord." And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. That right there is what Paul um, quoted in Romans 9. I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious. I'll show mercy to whom I show mercy. Verse 20, God says to Moses, But 
You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. The Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back. But my face shall not be seen. Moses prayed, show me your glory. And God says, I have compassion on some people, and I have mercy on some people. Here's what we can conclude from that. God's glory is associated with his freedom in election. God's free to choose whoever he wants. He owes no man anything, right? That freedom that God has from us, he is not bound to us. He is not obligated to us for any reason at all, except by his own promises to us. He is not, let me say it like this, God is not bound to us because of anything that we've done. He's not in our debt. That freedom is the glory of God. That freedom that God owes no man anything, that is his glory. So after that prayer and what God said to Moses, God tells Moses, come back up the mountain. Come see me tomorrow morning. And bring two new tablets with you. You know, he had the stone tablets. God wrote the Ten Commandments on it. Then Moses broke those tablets. Well, God says, bring two blank tablets back up the mountain. We're going to do this again. So Moses obeys. Uh, Look at Exodus 34, verse 4. Exodus 34, verse 4. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. And he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai. Keep in mind, this is after seeing the glory of the Lord. Went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger. And abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping love for thousands. You see that? Not everybody. (laughs) I believe that's a reference to this special electing love of God. This covenant love of God. So keeping steadfast love for thousands. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So do you see that? As God tells Moses who God is, there's all these wonderful, incredible promises. But there is also much to be terrified of. Amen? Amen. We must be terrified. Of the wrath of God, we should fear Him. But if we belong to Him, if we have received His great love for us, then we rest in that, knowing 
that that love has brought us everything or will bring us everything that God is going to give. So we have these terrifying descriptions of God, but we also have these incredible descriptions of God where we see his tenderness and the mercy of a kind and loving father. We get to Exodus 34, verse 8. Look at how Moses responds. Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. Church, when God teaches you of himself, we worship. That is the only way to respond to the revelation of God, to the manifestation of God, to God showing himself to you. It's to pour yourself out in worship before him. Exodus 34, 9. Look how humbly Moses approaches God. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. See, Moses knows something that most Americans have forgot. God is the king. And you don't just walk into the king's throne room. The king doesn't owe you anything. Moses says, if I have found favor in your sight. That's a way of saying, almighty king of majesty, your royal highness. If you will permit me into your presence. If you allow me to come, would you please go with us, Moses is saying, into the promised land. See, Moses knew that he was a sinful man. Like Isaiah that we read earlier in our service. Moses knew that God was just in leaving sinners as they are. Moses accepted this truth. Because it is the very nature of God. And if it's the nature of God, we can't change it, can we? Church, let us accept these difficult truths. All right, let's go back to Romans 9. Let's go back to Romans 9. I just, we just looked at verse 15. We went back to the book of Exodus to look at that. Here's the implication of what Paul writes in Romans 9.15. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. What does God's mercy and compassion depend on? Verse 16 says, not on your will, not on our decisions, not on our exertion. That word in the Greek has to do with running. No one can run to God. No one can run to Him apart from God's divine, unconditional, incredible love. So, I believe this rules out the free will of the sinner. We do not have free will to choose God because we are enslaved to sin. I said earlier we were spiritually dead. And a dead person doesn't get to choose, make a decision to become alive. God must raise them from the dead. 
I believe that Adam and Eve had free will in the garden. That's free will according to the Bible, and they made their choice. We were born enslaved to sin. We've never had free will until God saved us. And then He set us free. Now, we choose God out of the freedom. God has restored the free will of man to Christians. So the way the world and the way a lot of Christians look at this idea of free will is very troubling and unbiblical. And I spent years of my Christian life thinking about it that way. And I'm sure some of us here do today. And if this idea of free will troubles you at all, I have unpacked this quite a bit a month or two ago. It, 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 it's a humbling thing. So... This teaching is humbling. How many of us have ever thought... All right, right, let me ask you this. As a Christian, have you ever looked at someone who's not a Christian and just thought, if they would just come to God like I did, they wouldn't be going through all this? I've thought about that. we got to repent of that. This doctrine does not allow us to think that way. We get to verse 17. There's another Old Testament example to prove, God's, to prove Paul's point that God's done nothing wrong in loving Jacob and hating Esau. So God gave us one example, but he gives us two, just to make it clear. Verse 17, For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills. Do you see the four in verse 17? And then the implication in verse 17 or verse 18, so then. So the implication, he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. When I was around eight or nine years old, I wanted to read the Bible. And I started in Genesis. The first half of Exodus was so exciting, but the second half was rough. I didn't make it to the end and I quit. But when I was reading the first half of the book of Exodus, I read over and over again. I mean, this was 30 years ago. I was, you know, Eden's age. I kept seeing that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And my thought was, how can God hold Pharaoh accountable if God hardened his heart? Well, I didn't understand Romans 9. I didn't understand that at all. But it troubled me, and that trouble stuck with me for years. I'm going to address this further next week. Next week, we're going to see that God is free to make one vessel for dishonorable use, and he is free to create some people for the purpose of wrath prepared for destruction. And there's more to it than that. I'll unpack it more next week. I didn't know that either when I read the book of Exodus. What we also fail to realize if it upsets us that God would harden Pharaoh's heart We don't realize that his heart was already hard. I think we sometimes wrongly assume that God took a good man and turned him in the other direction. But that's not what God did to Pharaoh. God took a wicked and hard-hearted man and ordained that Pharaoh's wickedness would be increased so that God would get the glory over Pharaoh. That's Exodus 14, verse 4. Look it up if you like. God raised Pharaoh up in power and in wickedness 
so that God could show that his power was greater than even that most great wickedness that Pharaoh showed. I believe it's also helpful to recognize the nature of God's judgment over wicked people. Y'all know the story, the Israelites were slaves, right? Pharaoh just thought he could treat particular groups of people however he wanted to. Pharaoh played God to his fellow man. Pharaoh set himself up as a God to all these other people. Instead of abiding by the jurisdictions that God has placed on rulers, God has a role and responsibility for rulers. Instead of Pharaoh abiding by that, Pharaoh played God. Pharaoh oppressed them. He treated them ruthlessly. He made them his slaves, and he made their lives bitter with hard service. Exodus 1, 13 and 14 It says that the Egyptians ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service. Keep in mind, bitter with hard service. Keep that phrase in mind. In mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. Y'all, God did to Pharaoh as Pharaoh had done to others. Pharaoh made other people's lives bitter with hard service and God made Pharaoh hard. God inflicted the very judgment on Pharaoh that he was inflicting on other people, thus making Pharaoh's heart hard. And God did all of this while never once being guilty of sin himself. God remained pure in the middle of this all. And what was the purpose for God raising up Pharaoh in this great wickedness? Verse 17 tells us, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. See, God does this from time to time. He did this with Pharaoh. He's done this with other rulers throughout history. We see this with Nebuchadnezzar. We see this with numerous other stories, especially in the Old Testament. I believe we see this with Herod in the book of Acts in the New Testament. But God raises up rulers so that he may show his power over them so that God's name would be proclaimed in all the earth. So, this teaching on God's election of his people is difficult. There's a few things I want us to keep in mind, and I'm going to summarize with this. Got a few more minutes here. If we're going to understand this, and if we're going to embrace this, we must always remember that man is totally depraved and sinful and that there's nothing good in us because of our sin. Church, please beware of the entitlement mentality. God owes no man anything. If God never did anything good for anyone he created, he would have done nothing wrong. If God would have never done anything good for anyone he created, he would not have done anything wrong. He would still be just. Praise God. He has called many to himself. All right. So let's think about the people in our lives who aren't Christians. We know that it is the job of the church to 
collectively, us together, not just me, not just you, but us together, we know that it is our job to call sinners to repentance. We have to invite people in the kingdom of God. We have to show them their sin with the law of God. And we have to speak of the gospel and the free kindness of God that Jesus came and died as a sacrifice on the cross for sinners and that, that he rose again the third day and anyone who would believe in him can be saved. We're supposed to tell people that, right? I want us to remember, when we think about unbelievers, we used to be one. Don't forget that. I want you to know that just as God softened our hearts, just as God called us, there's many that that hasn't happened for yet that are of the elect of God. John 10, he says it like this, I've got many sheep that aren't a part of this herd yet. Go read John 10. He's the good shepherd. He's got some of his sheep with him, but there's a lot of sheep that aren't a part of this herd yet, but he's going to go get them when the time is right. That's John chapter 10. We used to be lost too. Just because someone is lost now, it doesn't mean that they aren't in the elect of God. We must also recognize that there is a general call to believe the gospel that has to go forth from the church. You know, some people have heard that if someone believes in election, then they don't want to tell any, they don't have to tell anyone about Jesus. And there are some people that actually believe that. And it's craziness, it's nonsense. We must recognize the difference between the general or external call for everyone to come believe and that internal and effective call where God reaches inside of you and you hear his voice. The general call goes out from the mouth of man. The external or internal, I'm sorry, the internal or effective call of God takes place in the heart. And no man can do that for you, but God can. And it is when man speaks the gospel... It is when man issues the general call that God does that internal call and grabs hold of you and makes you his so that you are never the same again. As you think about unbelievers in your life, we don't know who has been prepared for what. We don't know who's been prepared for mercy and who's being left in their sin. What we must do as Christians is do our part and be a witness and let God do his part. And he will pour out his mercy on them or he may harden them. As you consider these truths, I want to issue a warning. Be careful. Let God be God. There is a temptation to impose our standard of what is right and wrong on God. And looking at our passage today... And saying that this can't possibly mean what it clearly says. God would never do this to anyone. I warn you, don't put God to the test. (coughs) Do not harden your own heart against him and the clear teachings of scripture. Rejecting this teaching on the grounds that God would never do something like this so bad is to pronounce your own judgment of what is right and wrong on God. 
I don't want to be under the same roof as you if that's what you're doing. Don't take your own standard of justice and what you think is right and wrong and try to make God obey it. Let us humble ourselves and realize that our understanding of what love is and what is right and wrong are elementary. In this life, we absolutely can know what it means to love and what is right and wrong. But our understanding is elementary in this life because we are people who still deal with and struggle with sin and sin still abides. The devil still puts lies in our head and and we're still working things out in this life. Amen? Amen. I want us to accept this teaching by faith. I want us to embrace this teaching of God's sovereign, unconditional election by faith because it's been revealed to us in Scripture and it's been proven and seen throughout history. Hebrews 11.1 says that faith is the conviction of things not seen. See, the very nature of faith is you're believing things that you can't see. And a lot of it you can't understand. Amen? Amen? So don't reject this just because you have questions about it. Reject, I'm sorry, receive the teaching of God as it is clearly revealed in Scripture. Bring your questions humbly to God. Continue to study the Scripture. And God's going to teach you how it all works together. Amen? How many of y'all ever read something hard in Scripture and you struggled with it for months or years and then all of a sudden the light bulb came on? That's what we're going to do with this, church. That's what we have to do with this. Here's what I want you to do. If you're a Christian, receive this teaching. If you are not a Christian, I want you to come to Jesus. I want you to consider the life that you have lived. Every day, you do things your way and not the way that God has called you to. God has a law and He is a judge. And you will stand before Him one day and He will judge you according to that law. And in that law, He says, you shall have no other gods before Me. He says, you shall not lie. And a whole host of other commands. He says, honor your parents. That's just three out of ten. I've broken every one of them and so have you. If you are not a Christian, you will stand before God one day in His courtroom. He will be your judge. He will judge you according to that law. And you will be guilty. Here's what God offers all people Today, anybody who would come, He will wipe away all of your sin. Every ounce and atom of disobedience, God will take away. Jesus Christ came, lived a perfect life, did not break the law of God, was not a criminal, but He went to that cross... And He took on the sin of God's people. And He was judged brutally 
for the sin of God's people. And because He was punished, you don't have to be. And you can come to Jesus Christ. And you can be saved. You can't pay God for it. You can't make Him owe it to you. But God is offering it. What you can do is receive it as a gift. Believe in Jesus Christ. Turn from your sin and turn to Jesus and make Him your Lord. And you will be saved. Anybody who is willing to come may do so. If you are not a Christian, I want you to come today. So, that's what I want you to do. 30 more seconds. Look at Romans 9 verse 19. Another objection. You will say to me then, why does God still find fault for who can resist His will? That's a pretty good question that some of us are asking right now. That's where we're going next week. I want you to study the rest of Romans 9 in the week ahead. Dig into this. And that's where we're going next week. Let's pray, church.